0: Hey, guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Misty. I'm proud that you've decided to come back to the podcast and listen in. If you're new here, welcome to the podcast for the very first time. So proud that you have found I'm a Survivor podcast and that you're interested in hearing about the podcast and the guests who are on here. Uh, First of all, if you're in any any kind of danger, please do not listen to this podcast. Hang up um, and get you a safety plan in order. Call um, who you need to, your safe, your crisis line numbers, uh, law enforcement, just get in a safe place. Don't listen if you're in any type of danger. Uh, the National Domestic Violence Hotline number is 1 800 799 7233. If you cannot get an advocate on the other end of the line, if you're needing some help, needing information, that is a good source. You can also reach out to your own state crisis lines and hotlines. That would be my very that, that to me is where you need to start is in your own state. Um, and then if you cannot reach anybody and you're like, well, I just really can't get the information, domesticshelters.org is a really good place to get information you can find your shelters, your local shelters, what they are actually needing. There's donational things on there because, you know, as a domestic violence shelters, they, there are needs, you know, they are in need. So, but today's podcast, I'm very excited to introduce retired Lieutenant Mark Wynn. He is the owner of Wynn Consulting, childhood DV survivor, and he is a domestic violence expert. So hi, Mark. Good
1: morning, Missy. How are you?
0: I'm great. I'm glad that you're doing well. Um, so let's kind of talk about, I kind of want to just just dive right into to the fact that um, you just did a documentary. Not sure if you well, just did it, but you know. It's fixing to be released,
1: correct? It it, it is. We're okay. working on it now. We just finished okay. it actually. It's been a it's been a project for five years. Okay. Um, Absolutely. At a couple of filmmakers out of uh, New York, uh, and Andamar and Kristen Kelly, who've done documentary work on homeless teens in Chicago and and other social issues, uh, Emmy award winning. And about five years ago, they uh, they contacted me and said. Can we come and watch you train and i was doing a course up in loudon county virginia and, and they came to my training they said we'd like to do a documentary on this and i said about what and they said mm-hmm. well men doing the work and stopping violence against women and i said well I'm sure i'd be happy to help so they've been following me around the united states for the last five years filming interactions with victims and training and um, and some video shot here in Nashville, where I'm, where I'm from, uh, at the, the Mary Parrish Center, which is a transitional uh, domestic and sexual violence therapeutic housing program that my wife and I helped start about 20 years ago. And Mary Parrish was my mother, mm. so the Mary Parrish Center is part of the part of the uh, the subject matter for the film, and and we just finished it, and we're right now we're asking people like you and other, you know. Folks who do this work to take a look at it and see what to think. So hopefully we'll it'll be we'll start releasing it uh, this year.
0: Absolutely amazing, and and uh, and I and you know I told you I I did watch the documentary and I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited for it to be released, and it is a very important um, not only just as an advocate myself, but as a survivor to see someone like yourself, like you know a male figure, be a part of you know, this work and, you know, really care about victims and really care about training law enforcement and other people um, that do this type of work, that have to answer the call for victims, it's it's just overwhelmingly, you know, I'm, it, it's just a, a heart thing for me, you know, and I'm very proud of you and I'm very proud that, that you're doing uh-huh. this work continually. So, well, ben, thank you.
1: Yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of survivors in law enforcement. Yeah. Um, a lot don't talk about it. They don't mention it. They don't bring it up and that's fine. You don't have to you know, confess that you're a survivor, but over the years. And I, I, again, I've trained in every state. I don't know how many cops trained. i trained. I started training police in 82. So I've had officers walk up to me after training and say, I lived your life. I watched my father kill my mother. It's the reason I got into policing. My sister was sexually assaulted. Uh, And you hear these experiences, in my way, they're the same stories that you hear people like you or advocates who do the work every day. That's what brought them to this work. And this film, I'm hoping, will generate a conversation amongst men about what our responsibilities are, considering we're most often the perpetrators of all these crimes from stalking to trafficking, sex assault, domestic violence. I think we have a special responsibility to step up and, and do something about it in any way that you see fit, supporting your local shelter, you know, training your police officers to understand trauma, um, you know, changing the court system to make it easier for victims. I mean, there's so much to do. Uh, and engaging men is, is what I hope this film will do.
0: And, you know, something that is absolutely what I feel like this film is going to do. Um, because it's, it's so, it just resonates, um, you know, your bravery alone, just to talk about how you grew up and, you know, what you witnessed and what you heard and what you went through as a kid, you know, that's tough. That's very tough stuff.
1: Let me tell you how that happened. When I got on the, I started policing in 77. I spent a couple of years in Wichita, Kansas as a deputy and then I moved on. I moved home to Tennessee and got on the Nashville Metropolitan Police. And when I went through my training at the academy, they taught us mediation. That was the method at the time on how to deal with, in other words, arrest avoidance. Mm-hmm. And growing up watching the police come to my house for 10 years and not doing much of anything, and we, it got to the point where we were as afraid of the police as we were, my stepfather, mm-hmm. I realized that that kind of behavior was still going on in, in the in the late 70s early 80s when I got into policing so I knew what I had to do I had to bring a common sense sort of approach to dealing with this crime and breaking a lot of these myths that that you know communities had about the victims and the offender and that was part of my journey but it the most significant moment was when an advocate like you said who knew me here at Nashville said um um mark amy uh rosenthal she was an advocate for the police department she worked in the the, the rape unit mm-hmm. or the rape squad and she did what she worked with sex assault victims and she'd been doing this for years she said i know your history why don't you talk about it and i said i don't nobody wants to hear this and i had an opportunity to do a training for my command staff at the police department i spent an hour talking about my experience as a child growing up and why i got into policing and after i finished the presentation these are the chiefs of my agency they all left the room except for about three and they all three walked up to me and I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble. They, they, they didn't know who I was, when they heard me, but all three said, we lived your life. And, it, you know, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pretty amazing moment for me to hear other men say, I lived that life, but other men who had influence over the culture inside policing. So, uh, along, over the years, again, I always came back to my advocates to help me design lesson plans and to understand the issues and how to best deliver it. And so I'm advocate-trained and advocate-influenced, and I'm forever grateful for that. And through the years I got to meet, you know, my mentors like Ellen Pence and Barbara Hart and Jones Orza and those people who were part of the Better Women's Movement. And they let me follow along, and it paid off for me. I, I was able to, you know, speak inside the law enforcement. Uh, where nobody has spoken about this before. And, and and you'll see in this documentary, it covers a lot of those early years, uh, in the 80s, 90s, and, and throughout this, over 40 years of doing this work in all kinds of capacities, from advisor to expert witness in court, to, to police detective lieutenant. We started the largest domestic violence investigative unit in the country at the time in 95 here at Nashville. And I was part of that Process that built it and put it in place and hired the detectives and trained them, and it's still in place today.
0: So amazing. Such amazing work. Um, I'm so, I have so much gratitude for you um, as a human being um, and the work that you do because, you know, this is, of course, you know, is personal for me myself. Um, So when you talk about, you know, I wanted. I wanted to change, you know, how police was policing when they come out because we were just as afraid of the police as we was our stepfather. Well, that happened in my case as well, okay? So I'm in the same community that I was abused in. Um, And and my office actually is just probably not even a mile away from where I was abused terribly. Just, you know probably feet, <laughs> like not even like, I mean, just right down the road. And so when when the police, and, and that was one of the biggest reasons I didn't report the abuse to police, because whenever I did reach out and a police officer came, well, I didn't actually reach out. Someone's seen the abuse. It happened going down a road in Alabama, and it was hot. It was summertime. Um, and a lady had saw this happening, and she called the police, and when they showed up, his face was red, my face was red, our hair was everywhere. Of course, my hair was everywhere. He'd been pulling me by my hair and throwing me in a ditch and hit me in the face. And he, he of course, looked like he had been you know, just in a teasy too, but I never laid a hand on him uh, because it was hot. Um, So the police says, well, I'm going to take you both to jail. If you two can't get along. He never even asked me a question. He never said, ma'am. Has this man abused you? Did he hit you? because we just got a report that a woman was being abused, right? So that never happened. and and I can remember in that moment, right? that my heart just went into my stomach and I thought I can't call the police. What are they gonna do for me? So, you know, I think that when I whenever now I advocate for women, I do it with such, um you know strength and I also reach out to law enforcement a, a whole awful lot they pretty much know my name so I reach out to them and I'm I'm always checking you know does she have people who are like you know I know she has a protection order in place are y'all like going into her area making sure she's safe making sure he's not on her block you know patrolling you know have you got her on the list so I guess that, you know, you and I kind of have that, I I feel like we sort of have that little bit of something in common because of that reason.
1: Well, you know, in the film, and this is what the filmmakers, this is how they designed it. I didn't know it until it was happening. Um, We were in Texas. I grew up in in Texas. I'm a Tennessean, but I grew up in Texas, but Mm -hmm. we were in, I was in Texas doing a training at the annual crimes against women conference and they came out to film part of it and they, they said, Let's go back to your hometown, like you know, like like you. You live in your hometown. I said, Sure, I'll show I'll show you around one of my small Texas towns I grew up in and we pulled up to the very house that I one of the houses I lived in. I didn't realize and they had arranged for the owners to let us film in the house. And this I I ran from this house with a clothes on my back, so it was an interesting moment and I went in and and all all it came back it all just kind of came back uh, i could see it all happening in front of me mm-hmm. and while i was there i mean I, I told the filmmakers i said you know this is this is where i learned not to sleep and they turned that into the title of the documentary mm-hmm. and you know laying down at night and then you know this and so many survivors do you don't really sleep restfully because mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen in the middle of the night, which it often did, uh, or the police would be there and arrest him and not, not even talk to us. And I'm not mad at the police. I understand what, who they are and how they were trained, but it was, um, it was, uh, wasn't easy. Uh, and I, I but I'm glad in retrospect that we did it because it's, you know, this is what other men need to see that, um, Most do get out. Most men don't abuse. Uh, But what do you do with that experience? And then, you know, as I move through through policing, you know, your circumstance is a good example of one of the things that I realized that we had a problem with is that traditional policing, and and this is not their fault. I mean, police do what they're trained to do. Mm -hmm. But police were looking at domestic violence as, as the same as a stranger assault. Two people who met each other don't know one another, and someone hits somebody else, and there's a crime there, and you make an arrest and move on. But with domestic violence, context is everything. And mm. what I realized the police weren't doing was asking that question. And you and you said it, ma'am. When did this start? Not just tonight. How long has this been going on?
0: Mm.
1: Uh, what else has happened here? Because the the thing that we know now from experience is that. These, this isn't usually just a domestic violence case. That's just part of it. You've got animal abuse and witness intimidation and strangulation and coercion and child abuse, and elder abuse. These crimes are all interconnected and co-occurring. And what brings them together is the history. You, you've got to ask the victim, tell me what happened last month, last year, because if we're judging her for slapping him. It makes sense that she was slapping, considering he raped her last week. Wow. this is real i mean you know this yes you work with victims absolutely and and police now are starting to ask these historical questions and it's all coming out i mean it's it's obvious um you know when you start asking these questions about victims they tell you everything that the offender often will say i didn't do anything that's their that's you know that's their denial without details mm-hmm. and we're learning i mean we're 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 teaching police you you when the the moment 911 call comes in, that doesn't mean that's the first time it happens. I know our crisis line here in Nashville told me when we were doing our early work in the 80s that victims call the crisis line for the first time on average after the fifth assault. And I asked the crisis line director, I said, well, wait a minute, I need to understand this. Is this, you're talking about 911? She said, no, Mark, she said, I'm talking about our crisis line. Mm. So by the time they call us, you know, there is often a dozen or more incidents. Hmm. all of that's important you, you've got to lay down a contextual picture of the crime to so the law keep its promise to the victim and if you don't then you find yourself making an arrest against someone who did nothing more than commit self-defense
0: Absolutely.
1: so i mean it is and, and we're getting there i mean there's all kind of training films there's curriculums it's you know the, the laws are being changed now from primary aggressor to pre- predominant aggressor Uh, you know, police departments are being trained in what coercive behavior looks like for the first time. So we're slowly, you know, training this next generation of police, uh, that you've got to spend more time on a call. There's more to it than you know. And if you walk away from it, then you may miss, you know, a child sex abuse case or an Mm -hmm. elder abuse case. Mm -hmm. And, and and that's not just me. I mean, I, I do a lot of work for the International Associations of Chiefs of Police and for the last 15 years we've been doing these national leadership institutes for police chiefs on violence against women and they said the same thing these these are you know chiefs from biggest small cities all over the country and they said we missed it we completely missed this we know now there's common characteristics trauma being one of them we know that we've missed crimes like strangulation and stalking and other crimes we know why we've missed a you know, lack of training minimizing by the police And we know the impacts when we miss them homicide Uh, community community trust victims don't call us anymore so it's not like we don't know and we've we've got a formula now that we apply we've got a whole gender-based you know uh, self-assessment for law enforcement that we created based on all this information that we've learned over the last 15 years so things are changing Uh, not as fast as i'd like but they're changing
0: Right. Absolutely. And, you know, that that part, you know, things are changing um, is absolutely amazing to me. And I'm, I'm so proud that, you know, we we've come to this moment, you know, that things are changing because I can remember in 97 whenever I was abused, like, you know, um, how things well, actually, it was 96. And how things were then as opposed to how they are now, even in the community that I am in, because law enforcement, they are growing. I see change. I see some things that are changing. Um, There's some things that need to be worked on. Absolutely. Um, But we have good law enforcement officers, I believe, in the community I'm in now. You know, they just have to be trained, and they have to be trauma informed. And you know, you and I were talking about that before we started recording, about how important being trauma informed is. Right. Because we missed the mark.
1: You know. Well, you know, Misty, the the whole thing around trauma has been—I've watched it unfold uh, over the years. uh, We first started getting, you know, indicators in the in the late '80s, early '90s. From uh, uh, you know, brain science folks, the neurology, the, the, the neurobiology folks, we call them the people like Rebecca Campbell at Michigan State, the people who study what happens to your brain when you're traumatized. And some of the first early studies came out of Canada. It was from law enforcement. It was when police were involved in high speed pursuits of foot chases or life and death situations. You immediately interviewing those officers at the incident. We saw the story wasn't clear I mean it was was fragmented as I was a homicide detective uh part of the 80s and 90s and I interviewed police officers after shootings Mm. and they would tell these stories and I said wait a minute are you sure that what happened yeah I think so they would say Mm. and then we would write it down and it would sound like they were lying to us and finally these you know these experts in Canada and other places said stop you have to stop and understand what you know physiologically happens inside your body and your brain when you're in a life in this situation and so we did that's why you know the custom now for police after a shooting is to let them go home for a couple of days just a couple of sleep cycles so their memory will come back into some kind of shape you may not remember everything mm. so when we started doing that the the natural next question was are we doing that for rape victims? Are we doing that for domestic violence victims? And the answer was no. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the law enforcement, and, you know, I was part of this this movement at IACP and other places, we started looking at how do we teach trauma to police? Not cultural sensitivity or competence. That's important too. But how does trauma impact your, your day-to-day work in these cases? And it's starting to pay off. Mm. Now, now you're hearing... Police departments say they're trauma informed, victim centered, and of course, victim centered is the other part of this. And that's allowing the victim to have some say in the process, instead of just forcing the criminal justice on the victim, the criminal justice system on the victim, which can be dangerous. You give them more options of what is available to them. That's that's the most important thing. I mean, justice is you know we, it's easy to lock somebody up, mm-hmm. um, but you gotta have you gotta have safety if the criminal justice system is unsafe for victims, they're not going to call in who could blame them. Uh-huh. So we're, we're trying to transform police around, you know, victim centered. I know here, here in Nashville, we've got the largest family justice center in the country. And, and it took us a lot of years to build it. and A lot of people are involved in a lot of, you know, great, you know, visionaries work in this field. That's, of where we're going or what does a community coordinated response look like you've got to have uh, people like you in the courts we've got to have you know good trauma-informed prosecutors and, and judges and communities that that are that are, are finally for the first time understand this that leaving is not an event it's a process mm. and everybody in the community has to play a part in that process and that means clergy and you know, the, you know, the clergy sometimes they they're playing catch up. I a lot of folks who work in the clergy, and at one time they would say things that were dangerous to victims, like let's bring him in, let's do couples counseling. And that's just you know you can't couples counsel with a criminal,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, especially this kind of criminal. So the the clergy would actually call it the holy hush. Mm-hmm and we're, we're now there's curriculums there's trainings they come to our they come to our trainings they part of ccrs around the country and now you get a really well informed clergy member and they'll say don't let the bible be the belt he beat you with mm. which is powerful i mean because offenders use scripture to to convince victims that they should be subordinate women shouldn't be subordinate to anybody right so um it, it, it just tells you how big the community has to be to protect victims and we're we're, we're getting there and, and all and all these things are part of the you know of the lessons that are being taught around the country it's, uh, one example of something that is coming on strong and I'm glad to finally see it is traumatic brain injury mm. 80% this is what the experts tell us in Australia and Canada in the United States up to 80% of your DV victims suffering, you know, some level of traumatic brain injury. That's higher than the NFL, by the way. Wow. Which means, how do you deal with traumatic brain injury? Boy, you have to understand what it is first, and then how do you, how do you you know, discover it? And what are the questions you ask victims? Um, because you may be talking to someone with traumatic brain injury. They have no, they, they can't understand what you're talking about. Complex issues. Um, the Ohio Domestic Violence Network has created a, a guide for this you go to their website odvn.org and you can download their invisible injuries guide for advocates uh, who are working with victims who are suffering traumatic brain injury it's a big problem but here's the other thing too but with that that's evidence of a felony
0: yeah, absolutely
1: you you do internal damage to someone in most states that's aggravated assault that's that's uh that's another crime are you investigating that
0: hmm absolutely you know i mean well with with my with my going back to when i survived you know you're talking about the brain injury part you know i kind of think that i went through some sort of traumatic thing with my own brain which i know i was very much traumatized at 18 years old by my abuser but and i was also uh dealing with postpartum i just had a baby like oh I yeah I had a baby in October of two thousand I don't oh, two 2000 to me nineteen ninety five oh. October of ninety nine nineteen ninety five so I married my abuser in January of ninety six, and so about three months after I married him he started being abusive, but it was he started out very slowly you know hitting me with very light things doing it in a sense to where you know, he could easily try to clean it up. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what I'd done. I thought I had did something wrong. I was very confused. I was young, confused. My brain was not completely developed at 18 years old, just had a baby. So, you know, he, he threw an oak um, bulldog that was on a mantelpiece, which this happened right down below my office, by the way, Um, He threw this piece of oak and hit me in the forehead. And I have a scar on my forehead from this incident. But I can remember seeing stars. You know, they say, you you know, that's just in the movies. You don't see stars. Yes, you do. If you get hit hard enough, you'll see stars. So this happened to me. um, And it was quite violent. It was a very violent moment. And... And you know, when I left the abuse, I got involved in drugs. I had, um, which which I was a drug abuser on the weekend, so I didn't call it an abusive drug habit. You know um it was just something i didn't know how to kill the pain after D- dv after i right. went through all that trauma i didn't know how to kill my pain but my daughter right. had been taken from me so mm-hmm. i i have just been through a whole lot so i went through an eating disorder also because he had me convinced my body was the ugliest thing on the planet um and so i went through a whole lot of mental emotional and physical abuse even sexual with him right. Yeah. Well, you know,
1: it's the, the the people medicate themselves for mm. because of pain, and, yes. and and the studies that we've seen in policing bear that out. Um, actually, when you look at officer deaths in the country, we kill ourselves more than the suspects do. Mm. Uh, there's a whole science now around officer wellness, and what we've realized is that for years we had officers who were experiencing incredible amount of PTSD who got no help whatsoever other than, you know, be tough, you know, you're a cop. Mm. And what happened is we started to lose, we, we were losing officers all the time. We just didn't know how to deal with it. Mm. Now, you know, we're, we're taking care of the mental state of our officers. And it's also true with victims of domestic violence. You know, the numbers that we've seen over the years, about 65% of the calls that police response to, there's drugs or alcohol there. There's a reason for that. And the other thing, too, in alcohol use, when you drink or use drugs, it doesn't mean you're a liar. More likely, you're more likely to tell the truth and you're more likely to confront the offender. That's when the most serious violence often happens, because now you're signaling you want to leave, that's separation violence. But, you know, I tell police all the time, Let's don't look down your nose at people because we've experienced the same thing in policing. You know, our police psychologist here at the Nashville Police Department told me that on average, most humans will experience you know three or four major traumatic events in their life. Most average serving you know police officers will experience a hundred, mm. and that accumulates, and then you start doing things you know dangerous. You drink, you get divorced, you use drugs. That's all a byproduct of the violence you, you experience. Mm. We know that now. Right. The other thing, too, and I'll say this, Miss, you know, you, this is something that it's just a common sense, of, you know, evaluation of mine. People don't get together because they hate each other. For God's sake, they love one another. They have right. children, they have a home, they have a mortgage, they, they have hopes, and... And then you know it doesn't take long for these kind of offenders—they show themselves—and and then now you're trapped, or you think you are. Mm-hmm. So I tell police all the time, you know, if, if it's against the law to pick the wrong person as a mate, then half of us would be in jail.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so you, we are almost at the thirty-minute mark. So you want okay. to come, we can come back and record some more. Um, just hold on one second. Okay. Okay, we're back, so we can talk now. So, yeah, finish saying.
1: Oh, you know, you were talking about your mm-hmm. own your own injuries. And that's, yeah. that's, this is not unusual. This is um, my mother, I, I watched, you know, as she was beaten into two miscarriages and head injuries and hospitalizations and broken bones, being thrown out of a speeding car late one night. Uh, all, all this adds up on you, on your body. And I've talked to, you know, researchers, doctors have looked at this issue and we're talking you know they believe now that it it speeds up things like cervical cancer and breast cancer and uh, gastrointestinal issues you deal with all your life and reproductive issues you deal with all your life this is not just a moment where somebody hits you it you carry that with you all your life so that the medical toll we don't know how many billions of dollars when you look at criminal justice and, and the, you know, the mental health field and the, and the, you know, and the medical field, what it costs our country um, every every year. So, and, and then when you look at the pregnancy, I mean, we, my mo- my mother's example is a good example of that violence goes up in pregnancy. Mm. Um, and now you've got a citizen being assaulted before they even hear. Just think about that for a second. And then the other part of this is. The exposure, I mean, I, for, for years I trained police that when you go in, you see a four or five or six year old boy, usually, usually they, you know, will start to identify with the aggressor and they'll, they'll be violent with their own siblings or people at school. And that's very true. But, you know, what we now know about brain science and Dr. Bruce Perry, Dan Baylor has pioneered this, says that the brain is affected in children, you know, 12, 10 months, not 10 years old. Uh, and when you live in that toxic environment, it affects the way your brain develops. Not that your brain can't heal itself, Mm -hmm. but we need to understand that, you know, those children who are exposed to the violence day in, day out are highly likely to be victims and offenders in the future. This is what bothers me often with the courts not understanding that, that uh, a protective order given to a victim will stop the exposure of violence to the children that's that's worth its way in gold. Now never mind you're worried about him hitting you again or coming into the house just exposing your children to the violence that's stopping that exposure uh, can have real impacts positive impacts on the child so the medical field is finally you know chiming in obviously we've got sane nurses and SART nurses around the country working in sex crimes that's finally we've had that happen um but it's 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 a big bill. The bill that's paid around domestic violence, the the person that pays the most is the victim, hmm. but society pays the, a heavy cost as well.
0: Absolutely, and you know a lot of people think, and that goes back to people thinking, well, this is this doesn't have nothing to do with me. She should have left, right? I mean, for crying out loud, she should, she should, she would have just walked away, and she wouldn't have had to deal with this violence, and and they are it's not their responsibility right so they feel like they're not responsible and they don't have to take any type of responsibility in someone else's um abuse right so that that goes without saying the shaming behind being a victim of dv is absolutely still it's still there just like it was so many years ago you know right. and and it's hard to get people to understand all of the factors of why you know, victims do not leave. And there's just so many of them. There's so many.
1: Well, one is, you know, this fear. Mm, And and I I don't know what fear is. I I carried a gun for a living for over 20 years. Mm. You have to understand what fear does to you. And two, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of, you know, solid research around if you coerce people over and over and over and over again their entire life, they're easy to be coerced that's the that's the, the end product for an offender and when we deal with a victim at the scene of a crime as an officer we need to understand that this is somebody who's been pushed around and bullied all their life uh so you, that that's why you need to understand how important being victim centered and trauma-informed is as, as a law enforcement uh, officer because you could do more damage and i you know i just i remind officers all the time there's a positive and there's a negative impact on victims when you get there and you have to you have to understand that and plus if you've got um, a a underserved over police population like native american women or undocumented women or um, uh, uh, african-american women who experienced a, a lifetime of trauma and now the police can add to that trauma. I, I did focus groups in Virginia with those three populations, and I heard over and over again from undocumented immigrant women, "Why would I call you if you're going to send me back to Ghana or Namibia or uh, Venezuela or some of these countries that they come here to, to to survive?" But we find ourselves calling them things like illegal aliens. Your body can't be illegal for god's sake aliens are out of a spaceship let's, let's stop calling people these names because if we send that message to them they won't call us if they don't call us they're easy targets for these kind of predators mm. so there's this is uh, we're waking up and then the other thing too i think it's important we're starting to have a real serious conversation about bias and policing are you biased against a group of people for a particular reason uh, are you biased against women who don't get out? Are you biased against women who report sex assault? Um, and, you know, the bias today is not biased of yesterday, but it plays an important role. If you write in a report that this woman can't be raped or she was drinking, she should have been out that late, we have all these myths, so then the case is not likely to go anywhere, and now you've got a victim who doesn't call us again. And the offender goes on to some other victim. That's what they, they are you know, how predators are. Yeah, they get, they move on to the next victim
0: absolutely because you somebody
1: know, who's somebody's willing to be kind and nice mm-hmm. and considerate that's that's who they look for oh yeah because
0: them. it's about power and control and if yeah. they can start to control and get power over their victim then they've got it made so right. yeah, yeah right. definitely
1: yeah. Yeah. any criminal thinks that way I mean you you know you, mm-hmm. you ask any criminal how do you how do you know who your target is and they say, well you do it long enough and you can figure it out mm-hmm and that's and that's true for domestic violence offenders as well
0: absolutely absolutely i agree 100 percent. so after um years of, of myself healing um my abuser was in prison for 10 years unfortunately not for what he did to me but for other crimes that he had committed when he got what? out of prison he ran and and, and bragged about getting a 20-something year old female my daughter's 27 by the way the one i had with him um, so he got her, he, he bragged to his own mother that he got her fresh out of a domestic violence shelter and, um, she has a mental disability and draws disability and he's had two little bitty babies. Like in the past two or three years, he has little bitty boys, like little bitty kids and he's over 50 years old. Oh, wow. Uh huh. So he was significantly, significantly older than me. He was 24 and I was 17 whenever I met and got with him back right. in 96, 95, 96. So, yeah, so there's a pattern there, right? So he's still abusing. He's abusing her and and the children, DHR um, has been called numerous times. Um, so, and the mother, and, and what gets me is the the mother knows, like his mother knows he's abusive. You know, and I get a lot of people who ask me, you know, well, you know, say, well, the the man who abused me, the mother took up for him. Of course, right. that's just the way it goes, um, and, and it's unfortunate that happens, but it does. The right. families tend to take up for the abusers.
1: No, that's 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 not unusual. As a matter of fact, when you look at that kind of behavior as a as a police officer, what you all see is a family gets involved in the stalking they get involved in the witness intimidation Mm -hmm. they get involved with lying to the police i mean we saw some of that in the petito case Mm that out of utah Mm -hmm. where his family was covering for him Mm -hmm. um so it is not unusual you know to see family members as part of the part of the problem putting force and you know coercion on, on the victim so that's that's another missed crime that we often we don't, we see it happen, but we don't prosecute it like witness intimidation, which is a big reason why victims don't come to court.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we have about, we are nine minutes in on this next episode. We did kind of like a twofer because we was like entranced and speaking to each other. So, but I'm going to let you tell everyone where they can um, see your things on social media. How do they like, once the documentary comes out where will that be located um can you give that information out or are you able well, I, here's, I
1: don't know yet okay. I mean, we're, this gotcha. is a the, you know i'm not in control of the, oh. of the distri- distribution of it it's the it's no. the company on new york that's doing this but okay. what we're hoping to do is to introduce it uh in a couple of national conferences we're going uh, gonna to show it at the the family justice center conference in uh, this year in california and a couple of other places but um it's all going to be shown in film festivals uh, okay. around the country Absolutely. Um, to, to be distributed i think that they're ideas that
0: when you do these film festivals you know public television or
1: hbo or netflix they those folks are always there and they're looking for documentaries so that's one of the things they tell me that they're they're gonna uh, uh, explore as to how to distribute it but just say to them uh, you know i've i, I Whatever I do, I'll have it on my uh, social media pages on LinkedIn or on uh, Facebook at Wind Consulting. Um, so just stand by. It's, it's, this is brand new. this is just we just finished it. So. and but we'll have a website um, okay, cool. for, for the launch of the film too. So that's all
0: being designed right now. Absolutely amazing. You know, as always, it's so great to talk to you, Mark. And I get so much out of talking to you. I mean, we could probably talk all day about everything, you know, and and we probably talked a little bit about some things off off the mic than we did actually on the mic sometimes. Uh, you know, but it, it's always a pleasure, and I'm so proud that you came on the podcast and and you spoke about all these things because it's important. It's important to let people know. And and if there's anything else that you'd like to say to the viewers out here that are listening, what would be one thing that you would say if like a victim or a survivor were listening right now? What would you say to them? Well, I mean, I, you know, that
1: that's a that's a short question with a big answer. Mm-hmm. I you know, I just think. That victims, survivors, people living in it right now, that don't see any hope, but there is. Um, there's somebody in your community you can reach out to. You know, a, a friend, an advocate, maybe even a police officer. Um, but just understand this: this is none of this is your fault. Uh, this, is, these offenders will drive that into your mind that it's your fault and you're the reason for it. But it's not your fault. And no, no one, no one, no one deserves to be abused in any way uh, we live in a you know a, in a democracy this is a free country you have liberty when someone takes away that liberty it's a crime um and so it, it just won't you know victims to know that, that there, there is hope um and again don't don't blame yourself and for relatives who have friends uh, daughters sons you know uh, sisters nieces who are victims be patient. Don't be judgmental. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to put your feet in the shoes of them for a few minutes. Uh, when they don't make that move to get out. You know, we, we, I'll, I'll give you one quick example. We used to tell victims years ago, ma'am, we think you're in danger. You should leave. Well, the victim was saying, well, damn, why not think of that? It never occurred to me. The smartest cop I ever met, I'm going to call the chief and get you promoted tomorrow. Well, they knew it they just didn't have the right opportunity so um you know my you know message to communities is uh don't look at this like why doesn't she leave you have to look at it as what are we prepared to do for her when she decides to leave that's
0: the most important question for us to ask amen Absolutely. So I'm going to let us go and I want you to stay on the line and I'm fixing to stop the recording. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. Um, The next episode will be in March. So I hope that you stay tuned to that also. And thank you so much, Mark, um, for coming on and um, talk to you you later, guys. Talk to you on the next podcast. Bye everyone.